previously on Change the Story, Change the World. My current project, which is about African-American suffragists, 1918 to 1920, who were trying to not only support the vote for women, but to find a place for themselves in that. They were doing that against the landscape of the 1918 flu. They were doing it in a pandemic year. They were doing it with their men coming back from World War I, having fought segregation in their their communities. They, They were doing it on the eve of a national election of 1920. And they were doing it on the eve of the 1920 census. And I felt that we needed to do something, Bill, that was not about ribbon cutting or uh, uh, confetti, but that we needed to to do something uh, old and audacious. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and transformation. I'm Bill Cleveland. In our last episode, we began our conversation with activist, performer, impresario, and historian Lenwood O. Sloan, who, among other things, refers to himself as a gunrunner for the arts. In it, he described how his love of dance, theater, and history merged into a life path of creative change-making across the globe that has been filled with opportunities, obstacles, and a lot of learning. As a case in point, he introduced us to a gathering at the crossroads, a work in progress currently taking place in his hometown of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, that explores the history of Pennsylvania's black suffragists, the struggles bringing the franchise to African-Americans and women through the U.S. Constitution's 15th and 19th Amendments, Harrisburg's role in the Underground Railroad, and much, much more. Now we rejoin our conversation with Lenny Sloan, which took place in the spring of 2020 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. So, Lenny... As you began to understand the profound importance of the history you were exploring in Harrisburg, you came to the conclusion that telling the story properly would require something bold and audacious. So tell me, how will bold and audacious make its presence felt in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 2020? So I discovered that of the close to 300 iconic objects, on the Pennsylvania State Capitol, 77 of which are statues. There was not a single statue or a monument to an African-American or a woman on the State Capitol of Pennsylvania. You know, so, <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, we've got to fix that first. You know, and the power of public art to create public dialogue, public engagement, the power of placemaking, cultural and heritage tourism. I was like, let's find a place on this campus, uh, which as in 2016, in 2020, will be a deciding factor in the national election. And let us make our moment, let us make our place. 
we discovered that a number of orators between 1866 and 1870, when the 15th Amendment was passed, came to the Capitol from all over the mid-Atlantic states to speak on behalf of the franchise. And through a public uh, process, we collected the names of 100 important people who had been influential between 1870 when the 15th Amendment was passed and 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed in the progression of equity and parity and the value of the vote. We selected four of them, three men and one woman, to create as full life-size bronze statues standing on a corner in Harrisburg, PA, with the 15th Amendment in their hand, you know, in deep in dialogue, a bronze monument made up of the four statues standing around an orator's pedestal. We also placed the names of the other 96 on the body of the pedestal. Our goal was to take K. Leroy Irvis, who is passed now, Speaker of the House of Pennsylvania, was the first Black Speaker of the House since Reconstruction. And the Pennsylvania House of Representatives building is named after him. But the lawn on the Irvis building is the only unmanicured, unlandscaped, it's a no place. Said, okay, let's use his lawn. This is an act of reparation. Let's place this monument to the vote on K. Leroy Irvis' lawn and let's rename it K. Leroy Irvis Equality Circle. So the proposal was to turn this neglected corner of the state capitol grounds into what constitutes a new state park. I'm assuming there are a few hoops and hurdles involved in an endeavor like that. Well, the Department of General Services told us to do that, you are going to have to get the vote of the House, the vote of the Senate, the endorsement of the governor, and you're going to have to raise the money yourself. The only word in the dictionary that I really love is no, because when you say no to me, that's like a green light, you know, like... So I said, cool beans, you know, I know how to do that. So we got a unanimous decision from the House, a vote of acclamation by the Senate, the governor's endorsement, and we raised the money to place this monument sometime this summer. We were going to do, do it uh, a week of celebrations from Monday, June 15th to Friday, June 19th using the 15th and the 19th as our emblematic dates, and also June 19th ending in the annual revisit of Juneteenth. Juneteenth commemorates June 19th, 1865, and the announcement of the abolition of slavery in Texas, and more generally, the emancipation of enslaved African Americans throughout the former Confederate States of America. Of course, as a gun runner for the arts, I was saying, why Juneteenth? Because those folks in Texas didn't know the war was over, and these people in Pennsylvania don't know the war is over, and you know, we are still on the battlefield. You know? So we will retake this place on the Capitol lawn, and we will make this, this piece of history. But I have to say, the monument 
the physical bronze piece, the monument is only the thing that people can lay their hands on, Bill. It's the preparation for the monument that has brought over 45 organizations across the state and more than 200 individual artists, humanists, and scholars together. It's the preparation for the progress. So in a way, my colleagues would hate it if I said this, I will be sad to see the monument go in the ground because what it has caused is a coming together and a purpose and an advocacy and a civic dialogue about the value of the vote and the engagement of individuals, not leaders. The leaders all stepped back and said, it's on you people to do this. So this is a We the People project. And the process has been monumental. It's the process that I'm hoping will continue engagement and that many coalition efforts will come out of bringing these people together. So Sloan, speaking of processes and coalitions, uh, you mentioned four people who figure prominently in this franchise, this neglected democracy story. I know one of them was a guy named Jacob Compton, who worked for Lincoln's Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. Who were these people, and how do they personify the crossroads? Jacob Compton is an everyman. Jacob Compton is like the guys who were on the Iwo Jima monument, you know, he was Simon Cameron's coachman. Simon Cameron was Lincoln's first Secretary of War and a Pennsylvania native son. In 1861, when Abraham Lincoln came to Harrisburg on his way to his first inauguration, he was on a whistle stop tour. And when he got to Harrisburg, his uh, guard, Pinkerton, the same one that Pinkerton guards are named after, came to him and, and told him about a first assassination plot. And this is a, an assassination plot on Lincoln before he is even inaugurated in, in 1861. Can you imagine that? You know, Lincoln was speaking at the state capitol. Pinkerton came. He was supposed to go to a place called the Jones Hotel and there were a thousand people waiting for him in the street, and they took him through the lobby of the hotel, out through the kitchen, and there a carriage was waiting, and Jacob Compton, the carriage driver, who had been an agent on the Underground Railroad, knew a secret way out of Harrisburg and spirited Abraham Lincoln out of Harrisburg and to a, a coach where Pinkerton took him to Washington and to his inauguration and into history. And I asked Republicans, if Jacob Compton didn't know the way out of Dodge, would there have even been a party of Lincoln? So this is an obscure man who is not written anywhere in the history. He went on to become uh, a digging in the AME church, uh, a great speaker in the 1866 Negro Convention in Pittsburgh, and a passionate advocate of the uh, 15th Amendment and used uh, the AME church pulpits across Pennsylvania to promote. William Howard Day intersects with Jacob Compton's life in that William Howard Day was an orator and an an educator. He was trained at Oberlin College. John Brown was his teacher. And 
John Brown laid the base coat for William Howard Day's social advocacy. When Jacob Compton joined the United States Colored Troops, 180,000 black men uh, fought in the Civil War on the Union side as the United States Colored Troops. At the end of the war, there was something called the Grand Review of soldiers, of all the Union soldiers marched down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House where they were mustered out and officially ended their service, except for the 180,000 black soldiers. They were not invited to march in the Grand Review. Since Simon Cameron had been the secretary for Lincoln and he lived in Harrisburg, they staged a grand review in Harrisburg. And William Howard Day was the keynote speaker of that grand review. So he helped Jacob Compton to finish his public service. He then stayed in Harrisburg and became the first black superintendent of schools in the state of Pennsylvania, and also the, one of the founding members of the Library Society that started the um, Pennsylvania public library system. Thomas Morris Chester, his family lived about four blocks away from that, and Thomas Morris Chester had grown up in Harrisburg, was schooled in Pittsburgh under uh, Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney sent Thomas Chester to Africa uh, before the Civil War. They believed that a black man was not going to get a chance in, in America. And so they were going to take all freeborn blacks who were landowners combined together. They were going to buy land in Africa and they were going to get out of here. They were going to book, you know, like to use the vernacular. You know. Chester was an exodester. Chester had organized an incredible group of men together from all over the mid-Atlantic states to respond to Abraham Lincoln uh, on the Emancipation Proclamation. They were not convinced about the Emancipation Proclamation at all. And in fact, they elected 70 men to go to Washington, D.C. and present their rebuttal to the Emancipation Proclamation. They don't teach that to us in any history book. You know, there's no history book that tells you that free men of color had a rebuttal to the Emancipation Proclamation. So, am I right that Lincoln was actually on board? He was partial to this notion of getting on boats, going back across the ocean? He was like, I'm with you. Pack up your guys. We'll get you your freedom if you get out of Dodge. That's not a Lincoln story either, yeah. But Chester continued to work. He became the black, first black journalist of a, of a major American newspaper in Philadelphia. And there he met a woman by the name of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, who had been a suffragist. She had been at Seneca with Elizabeth Cady and Lucretia Mott. They had put it to her to use the vernacular, 
They were, the white suffragists were very concerned that black men would get the right to vote before white women. And they uh, told Frances Harper that either she had to be a, a, a abolitionist or a suffragist. You know, uh, she couldn't be on both teams. And she made a very famous speech, which asked the question, am I a black woman or a black woman? You know, and she was also the first black woman to have a major newspaper in, in Pennsylvania. So how are these incredible stories going to show up in the development and design of the monument that will be placed on the state capitol grounds? These four people, Jacob Compton, Thomas Morris Chester, William Howard Day, and um, Francis Harper, are standing around this orator's pedestal. One last piece about that. Francis has the 15th Amendment in her hand, and the statue's animation is that she's handing it back to William Howard Day, saying, I don't see myself in this thing anywhere. You know, I, you know like, boys, this is not good enough. That's my own little, like, secret caption. You know, through the artistry of, of, of the brilliant uh, sculptors, you get it that she's, like, she's not convinced. Also, Bill, between 1870 and, and 1920 is Jim Crow. It's the end of Reconstruction. You know, is lynching. You know, is Ida B. Wells, you know. So it's just not those two dates on the calendar. It's the 50 years of struggle between the two. That, they, uh, that the, the monument speaks to. Yeah. One of the things that Lenny mentioned when we first started to talk about this project is the juxtaposition of history, human creativity, and the power of story. Whose story gets told or erased, or whose stories are embellished, whose are distorted? Throughout the years, one of the constants of Lenny's work has been his reverence for an investment in those discarded and distorted stories. I know the statue being installed is an important symbol, but my sense was that for this project, it is more a means than an end. That Lenny's primary interest here is in the living, breathing engagement of the social sphere of provoking civic conversation and changing consciousness. As is often the case when I asked Lenny to uh, re respond to this, he not only answered with a an apt metaphor, he revealed yet another layer of inquiry and organizing. Yes, the bronze is a GPS marker for the dialogue. It's a point of reference for the social engagement and for the dialogue. I have no idea, as you well know, what I am doing. I just get up and do it. You know? So when we chose the place for the monument, the K. Leroy Irvis lawn, K. Leroy Irvis served in the Pennsylvania legislature from 1969 to 1988. In 1977, he became the first African-American in any state legislature to serve as Speaker of the House since the Reconstruction era. We didn't know at the time that the site that we chose had been a dynamic free black community that had grown up since 1850 after the Fugitive Slave Act. We didn't know that it was an authentic site of the Underground Railroad, that it was a community called the, the Eighth Ward, that, was, that the majority of the people of the Eighth Ward had been freemen and freedmen. We didn't know that it took 
um, 70, 80 years for that black community to build the community around the Capitol. And it took exactly 26 months for it to be all torn down through eminent domain to build the Capitol Park. And so suddenly I was on another mission and that was to find the children of the old eighth ward, a block away from the, the main street of the old eighth ward was the federal fugitive slave office and the bounty hunters used to come into the black neighborhood every morning and tack up wanted signs and what kind of intimidation must that have been for people to continue to function as agents on the underground railroad and as safe houses so lenny i can just say um, there are very few of your projects that I know of that have not given birth to others and still others. And I think I can hear another of those births taking place right now as we speak. So I told you about the other 96 names on the, on the pedestal. So, so we started a campaign where we started going into black neighborhoods and churches and YMCAs and bowling alleys and barbershops. Wanted the children and grandchildren of Annie Amos wanted any relative of Don Adam wanted, you know, you know, if you know anybody who knows the history of this person, please contact us at digitalharrisburg.com and tell us your story. And we have found 38 of the 96 families and our goal is to bring them back to Harrisburg for the dedication so that they can stand and reclaim this neighborhood that was completely decimated through eminent domain. So we have this incredible through uh, Harrisburg University's technology program and through Messiah College's oral history program, set of students who have been searching for the descendants of our hundred names. And uh, our goal is to bring them all back together. Now it's, it's, it's taken on a new importance for me, Bill, because I didn't know anything about uh, social distancing when we started, you know? And so now I'm, I'm saying, well, perhaps the dedication of the monument will be an equation and a prescription for gathering again. You know, the name of the monument, which was a gathering at the crossroads, takes on new meaning when we look at how long will it take for people to feel comfortable about gathering again? How long will it take for us to reconstruct proximity? And so this day we are looking at the name of the monument and the action of bringing these families together and under new circumstances, you know, that maybe it's not about the monument at all. You know, like maybe it's just about coming together around common history common need and fellowship. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be accurate to say that there are certain aspects of American history, some of which you're exploring in this project that amount to a kind of historical social distancing and erasing a, a denial of the stories that are hardest for some folks to reconcile. And so bringing these stories back into the foreground at the same time that people are beginning to deal with the fear of being together physically could be a very powerful thing. In a sense, 
there could be more than one virus at play when the ribbon is cut. I mean, it's 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 really very important. The story of the of the demise of the old Eighth Ward is the story of redlining today. The practices of changing your polling place, redrawing neighborhoods, the suppression of black women candidates, all of the history, which we thought in a sepia tone way, we were going to recall. We are actually reliving, you know, <laughs> right down to the pandemic that they suffered. We are reliving that. Uh, even the notion of safe houses. Harrisburg is a community, uh, what shall I say, uh, conservatively, 17% immigrant and refugee. But in this census year, will people feel comfortable enough to be counted if they if being counted means they will be deported, you know? And so the the story of the old eighth ward as an underground railroad place and the story of Harrisburg as a, a port for immigrants and refugees, the currency astounds me every day, the currency of the project. So I'm committed to getting up and getting it done. And I know that it will take me where I need to end up, you know. But I have a a, a thing over my computer, a post-it. It says, the monument is not a place for pigeons. You know, it's, we are not building a beautiful place for pigeons. You know, like, you know, the monument is a movement of thought that regenerates its currency uh, on a daily basis. Pigeons, uh, beware. And so when you said uh, you don't know what you're doing, I mean, I know you don't know exactly where you're going, but I do know that every time you seize one of these opportunities, you pull out your shovel and you start digging, and inevitably there's there's more there, a lot more. Uh, that's That's your M.O. That's... Uh, the way you work. That's your practice. Well, I i don't believe that people hand me apples. I believe they hand me pomegranates that are full of seeds. And all I have to do is peel the skin back. You know, like, but also people are sent. You know, the universe sends you people. We, we made a commitment in our search for the artists to commission for the monument. We made a commitment to women and minorities, since that was the core theme. And the commission went to a woman that runs the only bronze foundry in the mid-Atlantic states. She hires 39 artisans teaching in the old wax uh, model of, she is handing down traditional ways of foundry and sculpting. She's employing itinerant uh, artists. But she's also repurposing welders and bronzers and cement makers and uh, concrete guys whose unions have cast them out. So she gives young people with MFAs the skill basis of, of technology, and she takes men who are out of work and gives them the new purpose. We are writing a STEM and STEAM education curriculum called Making a Monument around using STEM and STEAM education to look at the art of making a, a monument 
and all the sciences and technologies and engineering that are necessary for a community. And at the same time, we're creating a public policy cookbook about art in public places. Every one of the uh, abolitionists and suffragists that we're honoring came out of a tradition like Booker T. Washington did, and like, that a trade was the way of upward mobility of your race and class, you know? Uh, so Hampton, Howard, Tuskegee, they were all STEM schools, you know? <laughs> They're the grandparents of STEM and STEAM, particularly for people of color. So I said, it is important for us in the new movement of education to acknowledge the historical and cultural grounding of those historically black colleges as being places of trade and industry. Speaking of learning, of uh, education, one of the aspirations I have for this podcast is that people who are new to this work or attracted to it or excited by it get a little wisdom passed on. Uh, so let me ask you, you're sitting with folks who are really interested in working the way you work. What would you tell them are critical elements of your practice? Hmm. Listening. I would start with perfecting the art of deep listening. Because, and I, I don't mean hearing, because uh, uh, we're fairly good at hearing, but we're not so good at listening. You hear other, you're a musician. I see your guitar in the background. You know, uh, when you listen, you hear new melodies. You hear motifs that you didn't even think about. You know, you discover harmonies and uh, uh, relationships. And um, so listening, humility, things come through you, not from you. And uh, you try to contain your ego that, that it was your idea. You know, like, uh, my, my chosen culture is New Orleans, you know, and the notion of gumbo is you got the crabs, I got the okra, somebody else has the rue, you know, uh, we're going to make up something really good here. You know? <laughs> you know, So be humble enough to know that you are but an equation in any idea. And the third thing I would say is review the WPA, the Work Progress Act, because inside the construct of the Work Progress Act and for you and I, the Work Progress Act was CETA. C-E-T-A refers to the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which was a late 1970s jobs program that ended up providing over $300 million to hire unemployed artists to work in communities across the U.S. Artists in service to community, you know, and that work is progress, and progress requires work. Uh, it takes work and it takes diligence. But the great thing about the Work Progress Act was artists in service to community. And that model, if you want to be a community artist or a community arts worker or community activist, there are some historical movements. CETA is one of those movements. Work Progress Act is one of those movements. There are other historical movements where art was called to serve America. And we're seeing it today. We did an event at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia where we took five of Francis Harper's poems 
and we gave them to black male poets of Philadelphia and asked them what resonance does Francis's poem have to your work? It was really an incredible experiment asking these young black men of the uh, current culture to look back on a 19th century woman. Almost to a man, they said, well, this could have been written last night, you know, and uh, this is the universal theme. So some of the most creative solutions to coping with the current pandemic are coming from the artist community. Amen to that. Lenny, in closing, I just have to say that sitting down to a table with you is never a simple meal. It's always a feast. Uh, People who think they're just coming, you know, to have tea sort of end up in the middle of a a month-long festival. This attitude of creative abundance is the gift that keeps on giving. There's no bottom to that basket. There are definitely more tomatoes in there than you will ever eat. (laughs) That's why you have to find other things to do with the tomatoes. You got to make juice, paste, other applications. You can't eat it all, but you can share it all. No arguing that, Mr. Sloan. Thank you so much for your good work and your stories. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And please join us for our next episode. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by Judy Munson. Special thanks to Sweet Honey in the Rock for the use of their rendition of Sojourner Truth's The Valiant Soldiers. And uh, join the continuing conversations and check out the show notes at the Center's website at www.artandcommunity.com. Adios. Adios.